Hey there, M4Edge listeners. Thanks for downloading today's episode. Before we get started, I'd like to give a special shout-out to Hanin Kine, Simon843CT, or Connecticut maybe, and Biz Sauce. Why, you may ask, am I singling out those three listeners? Well, it's because they were kind enough to give us some reviews on iTunes. Kind reviews, in fact. So thank you very much. We really appreciate it. We're not entirely sure uh, who all these are. Um, Marco's theory is that Bizzaz may be his mother, because who else would have said that he's got an NPR-quality radio voice? So if you are, um, I guess, Mrs. Annunziata, grazie. So, dear listeners, please follow their lead, even if you are not related to us. Send us some feedback, write us a review, give us some stars. Uh, Particularly important for getting the word out is writing a review on iTunes. It really helps let other people find us. So thanks in advance. Next, as you've heard uh, in the last couple of episodes, we are trying to build a community of listeners. And towards that end, we've got this new section on our m4edge.com website called Listener's Edge. And it's where we encourage you to tell us what you're interested in. So you can fill out the quick form, let us know if it's a movie or a podcast or an article you've read. Anything you're interested in, we're interested too. Uh, Let us know and we'd like to share it with others. Next, during this episode, we are kicking off a new segment called Ricky's Reports from the Edge. We're going to keep it kind of a surprise. I won't say anything more about it right now, other than that Marco and I are super excited to do this, and we are confident that you'll enjoy it. So look for Ricky's reports from the edge somewhere about midway through the main conversation of this episode. And now, on to our show with Evan Karen of Switch.io. A lot of people focus on the climate problem and say it's too big to solve. And I think that, you know, what what I've noticed over the last couple of years is that the, I I believe that the technology that we have today can actually enable a clean, carbon-free future. Uh, I think that the, your listeners and and the world can get there uh, and and get there and without having to give up a lot uh, or without having to cost a lot. Hi, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today's guest on M4 Edge is Evan Karen, co-founder of Switch.io. That's Switch with a Y. Switch aims at accelerating the switch from fossil fuels to renewables by creating a global, efficient, and open market for carbon reduction. This is a complex global problem and one which has already attracted substantial efforts. Governments around the world have experimented with various subsidy schemes for renewable energy with various degrees of success. Entrepreneurs and scientists have intensified efforts to improve technologies for renewable power generation and for energy storage. Countries are discussing targets, negotiating commitments, fighting about who should shoulder more of the cost. So how does Switch think it can contribute to this already crowded field? Turns out there are several layers to the answer. The first step is as it always seems to be these days, to harvest the data. So Switch proposes a system to collect data on all activities that can contribute to reducing the carbon footprint. For example, a wind farm or rooftop solar panel installation could be signed up as part of the Switch ecosystem, and their generation of renewable energy would be continuously recorded. 
Switch wants this data to be verified and secure, not at risk of being tampered with. For this purpose, it uses blockchain. Michael is instinctively suspicious of blockchain, so I really look forward to this part of our conversation. I'm glad that I've, you know, I'm so entertaining to you. <laughs> Switch then wants to use these data to maximize the carbon-reducing impact of investment in renewable energy. In other words, if you had $100 million to invest in renewable energy, how should you invest it? A wind farm in Texas, a solar power plant on the outskirts of Delhi, Switch wants to allow you to quantify and compare the carbon-displacing impact of different investments. It wants to enable the best assessment of the impact and an assessment that can become a consensus among experts. We'll discuss with Evan how these could all be achieved. Once you know where the investment should go, how do you create the right incentives to direct the money where it will have the greatest impact? This is going to be perhaps the most interesting part of our discussion, and I suspect the hardest. Switch will issue tokens based on the value of different carbon offsetting or carbon displacing actions taken within the system. If the modeling is right, actions which have a greater positive impact on energy sustainability should earn you more tokens. But why would you want to earn the tokens? We will see what Evan has to say. There is a lot in Switch's mission that got us excited, notably the goal to accelerate the shift to renewables through better targeted incentives, and also to make our skeptical alarm bells ring loud, like the very mention of blockchain and tokens. There's a lot in Switch's plans, too. Power markets, climate impacts, a new kind of blockchain protocol with two sets of tokens, forecast model comparisons, and consensus forecasts, it's a lot to take in. As you will hear, it makes for a very engaging debate. Take it in, and you decide whether you think Switch will make a difference. Thanks for being curious, and enjoy the episode. Why don't we get going? So, Evan, Karen of Switch, welcome to M4 Edge. Thank you. Thank you for being uh, for inviting me, and I'm, I'm happy to be on the, the podcast today. Evan, thanks a lot. And first of all, before we get started, the full disclosure on my side, I know Evan, I'm an advisor for Switch. So once again, I will not be impartial. But on the other hand, Michael has promised that he will be exceedingly tough on you. So oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> like you have never had them before. <laughs> so to start off, Evan, can you give us and our listener a sense of what Switch is, what the goal is, how it works, and equally importantly, why on earth are you doing this? Yeah, the why on earth are, are we doing this is probably the, a great place to start. Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, my background in, in uh, renewable energy and energy trading, uh, years of, of dealing with um, uh, being in the banking side and, and understanding the, the, um, the systems around uh, energy technology, uh, we, we looked at, we spent a lot of time evaluating different technologies to figure out how to fix the problems that we've kind of created for ourselves um, from a climate perspective. And so focusing on the, the energy markets was, um, you know, kind of the, the utmost importance. And so, um, you know, my passion is trying to solve uh, multi-generational uh, issues and uh, obviously climate is, is, uh, is one of them. And so that's the why. So the why and and the how is really um, something that that seems simple, but is has orders of complexity as it as it grows and as it expands. But um, currently, Switch is is a uh, technology company 
that's using uh, distributed ledger technology and blockchain technology to do blockchain. Lots of definitions out there. None wonderful. I'll give it my best shot. First of all, it's a digital record of transactions. So a record that exists on computers rather than on paper. Second of all, it's distributed, meaning that there's no centralized keeper, no centralized authority to keep those records. Third of all, it refers to a system of cryptography that is very difficult to decrypt, uh, and therefore it's often called an immutable record. Part of its uh, immutability lies in the fact that most blockchains, there are different implementations, software implementations of blockchain. Most blockchains are wholly public. In other words, anyone who's on that record, who's on that set, set of records, has access to all of the transactions. And so therefore, any tampering with one of the records is more easily spotted. That's using uh, distributed ledger technology and blockchain technology to do some of the hard work in accounting for energy information from uh, SCADA systems and smart meter devices and IoT devices, uh, providing trust uh, and transparency in that information, creating permissioned access to that data, and then basically having that data be applied to different machine learning models uh, to evaluate certain climate assessment and climate effectiveness of certain activities on the network. And so the, the, the overall purpose and goal is to really try to bring a commons approach to the power markets, which doesn't necessarily exist because you know certain power market designs are, are really designed to be much more competitive than cooperative. And so the, the starting point is, is about democratizing access to data. Uh, and hopefully the goal is to really start uh, providing investments in both energy efficiency and re- renewable energy technologies to create a much more enhanced and efficient energy grid. So the overall, the overall purpose is to both increase efficiency in the energy system and at the same time make the global energy system more sustainable. That's right. And I think that the, the major challenge is associated with, uh, I guess, the competitive nature of the market designs. And so they're designed for a zero-sum type of type of situation where uh, you know, energy generators are pitted against energy suppliers and, and wholesale market participants and energy brokers. And there's just a lot of, there's a, a extreme inefficiency because there's very little awareness um, at the edge. And so, you know, I think that there's a lot of a lot of talk about how edge-level edge systems are going to speak to each other and how they're going to communicate and coordinate certain activities, but it's still very much focused on price. Um, and, and I think that the conversation needs to be included or included in that conversation is looking at what they now call automated emissions reduction um, technologies, where you're looking at the level of the carbon richness of a power grid and making decisions not just based on price economics, but also on environmental uh, outcomes. So- I had a ton of questions that I wrote up to ask you, Evan, and but you just said a few things that weren't even on my on my longish list. <laughs> nice. Um, before I get to any of the ones that I had or a couple of that I, that I just came up with, explain how Switch makes money. What's the mechanism, or how you plan to make money if you're not yet making money? That's that's a good question. And so you know, we we started out with the goal of building a system that was uh, using open source. Uh, type of licenses um, to to create a mar- you know a, basically a an opportunity for energy utilities globally cities cooperatives munis 
you know, any power system manager to be able to adopt it. And, and that was kind of the original idea. Um, and as the business, you know, kind of the, the world changes and everything moves fairly dynamically. Um, I think the, the goal for uh, uh, revenue and is not around the information. It's not around owning the data. It's, it's around bringing the data to uh, various levels of computational uh, clusters or uh, analytics and then basically charging for output. And that's really, that's what we're looking for now. So it's, a, it's around building a data commons uh, that the uh, energy asset owners and the um, smart meter owners own that information and supplying that information to models. And if the model output is useful, it, that's where the, the revenue is going to be um, generated. And so the core of the switch money-making activities is in the analytics that you'll sell to users of the system at various nodes. Is that correct? That's, yeah, that's the plan. I mean, we have a, fair, we have a number of pilots that we're working on, um, some paid, some unpaid, that are looking at portions of the application. Um, I don't want to say we're a glorified accounting system because, you know, really in actuality, from a technology perspective, the first phase is really kind of getting a standard sheet of paper that everyone can kind of work off of. Uh, but there's not very much money in, in basically replacing kind of siloed, siloed systems. I think from, you know, from an ideological point of view, I think that we, we hope that there is a robust market around environmental attributions that exist and the, the right types of uh, cooperative uh, currency models that might exist after we've gotten to a new system. But, you know, we're pretty practical with understanding that we're an enterprise technology company uh, that provides a service to uh, both uh, asset owners as well as um, companies that have, you know, kind of robust uh, CSR. CSR, that's corporate social responsibility other environmental uh, programs and, and sustainability programs. And so uh, there's, a, there's a reasonable amount of opportunity to be able to provide what we're looking at as source-level trusted information uh, back to those companies and then applying the, that data to certain analytical models. And that's where uh, the revenue optimization is. It's at the top of the stack, not at, not at the bottom. And here, perhaps, Michael, it's, it's worth taking one step back and talking a little bit about... Uh, how does switch supposedly create the value, which can then be appropriated or distributed across the different players in, in the system? Because uh, it seems to be something that Evan was hinting at earlier, discussing the commons approach, is that uh, in the efforts uh, to reduce the carbon footprint uh, and the pollution footprint. And so in the effort to increase uh, the production of renewable energy, something which is missing is a common approach to verifying, number one, how much green energy is being produced where, and number two, what is the impact of one unit of renewable energy being produced in a specific place at a specific time? So I think something that Evan was uh, pointing to is uh, switch as an aim to, first of all, provide a common platform to verify how that is taking place, uh, to have a common approach, a common language, hopefully a common valuation as to where the value in terms of green energy is being created. Evan, is that a fair characterization? How would you expand on it? Yeah, I, and I appreciate uh, you know making that that clarification point. At, at times, I kind of I gloss over kind of some of the or the complexities of, in our system. But yeah, that that's exactly that's exactly right. I think from our perspective is let's answer the question of 
if you had another billion dollars, where should that where should that money be deployed to actually increase the level of either resiliency or efficiency in the grid? And as an example, should I add a wind farm in Northern California uh, where I'm displacing potentially solar, or should I add you know solar in in Jamaica or the Caribbean islands or in the global South where I'm displacing uh, diesel fuel and fuel oil and significant amount of of, of carbon production per per unit of energy. And I think, you know, there's a valuable data set that can be um, utilized, what, but we need to be in a, in, in a commons approach. And I think there really doesn't, that doesn't exist right now. It exists in certain uh, academic institutions and some open source libraries where, you know, a lot, a little bit of the work has been, is being done, but it's not being, it's not being commercialized, number one. And I think that if you look at some of the other uh, consensus approaches, it's much more static. And so that, that, that just doesn't work. It, you know, applying a carbon component to a, a yearly output is really not going to get us the, the granularity that we need to make more informed real-time decisions. And despite, you know, it being 2019, there are still an incredible amount of inefficiencies around uh, around data and, and data capture and data analytics associated with even advanced technologies in solar and, and wind. I think, you know, we're, we're running through pilots and, and trials with companies that should have this information that that build hardware and smart meter technology. And they're just, we're just not there yet. It's surprising to me. I, I really did think that it was much more, much further along than it actually was, and, and which represents a great opportunity for this ecosystem and, and this system to exist. So, I mean, what's, what data is missing? So you said that power markets are inefficient. And I, I know that, you know, there, there are some stats out there that talk about the fossil or the energy inefficiency of grid. So if, if it's a heavily, heavily fossil-fueled grid and it's mostly coal and it doesn't have combined cycles and it doesn't have renewables, then people like to throw out this you know, 33% efficient, which is sort of the efficiency of, of an older coal plant. That's one kind of efficiency. The markets themselves, however, set aside for a minute the fact that they're not, most of them are not incentivizing clean energy or other environmental benefits, the markets themselves typically are quite efficient and they operate on second to second timeframe. So what inefficiency are you targeting? What, what, are, you, what are you aiming at? What data is, is missing? Well, I, I think from, from my perspective, the, the power markets have, were designed for uh, generation to exist uh, at you know, these big centralized control areas, right? So big power plants sitting a couple hundred miles from, from generation, from load pockets, massive transmission lines, huge infrastructure costs associated with bringing power uh, down to the demand centers. And I think that when we talk about the emergence of distributed energy resources and, 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 and really kind of generation at, at the edge. Distributed energy resources, or DERs, and generation at the edge. Of course, here at M4 Edge, we love anything at the edge. DERs, distributed energy resources, are generation assets or energy storage assets or energy usage deferral systems that are on the distribution side of the electricity system as opposed to centralized big power plants at the transmission end of the electricity system. So DERs are closer to your home or business. Lower voltage side of the grid can be things like solar systems on your roof or can be um, small uh, combined heat and power plants in an industrial complex, can be a system of electric vehicle chargers or other battery energy storage systems 
in your home or business. So DERs and, and generation at the edge or the grid edge kind of means the same thing. It's assets at the intersection of usage and production. The, the systems were not designed for that. And, and if you look at optimizing from a uh, centralized perspective, you know, there's line losses, uh, you know, there there are certain types of embedded subsidies for coal, for nuclear uh, uh, subsidies. That ha- there were subsidies for wind and solar when the price was really high. But if you think about, we're not going to get to a carbon neutral grid if we continue the policies that we've established across most, uh, you know, uh, deregulated energy markets. It's competitive. Uh, you know, even though cost of solar is lower, there are certain incentives to build large-scale combined cycle. Uh, clearly, no new coal is being built in the United States or, or hasn't been built or isn't planning on being built except for uh, you know, a handful of projects that are still under, under study. But when we look at the electricity markets are designed for you know, these competitive natures, uh, but again, you have capacity markets, you have uh, additional uh, resource adequacy markets like in California. There's a lot of administrative uh, oversight uh, that, that really take off-market, free market activities out of the equation. And the concern that, that I have and the concern that, that Switch has is that it's not doing enough to get us to what, what looks like a, a optimized edge case, which is not an efficient pricing market, but a market that is looking at the the externality cost of the energy, looking at the long-term uh, effects of, of climate change and, and, and basically just saying, okay, well, you know what? Natural gas is uh, $2.85 an MMBTU and my marginal heat rate is a you know, six heat rate. So you know what? I'm just going to keep using my natural gas unit. I just think that the, the system is not designed currently to accept additional renewables. And I think that's the, the major goal of, of switch is how do we create these new systems in general? Uh, how do we create this? How do we utilize this data uh, in order for us to get additional adoption of renewables and potentially even more um, renewables at the, at the uh, uh, distribution level? But the, but you're talking about a global system, right? So the, uh, obviously the grids are not, are not connected and That's right. power is added to a specific grid you know, when there's a need, most often, sometimes grids get overbuilt, but they're added, they're right. added when there's a need. So I can, I can see that you're looking to incentivize, you know, when there is a need, the first choice should be clean energy of some, of some kind. Uh, to me, that has less to do with the efficient operations of a, of a particular market than whether or not there's a carbon price. Like, couldn't theoretically a GHG price signal of some sort accomplish the end you want? What's the data? What what is the added data provide that gets you to this cleaner energy? The the first order is the information, and I think the access to information is the is the is the one of the major hurdles to this whole process. And you know, people want to make informed decisions, but they should have no idea where dollars should go. And I think if you take it from from step one to step two, it's this around where where should the financing dollars go? Where should the where should the investments go? I think that's really the the conversation is qualified investments in renewables in the markets that need them the most requires information that compares one market, um, one action to another or one place to another. So yes, the world is not connected 
uh, from an energy grid perspective. Clearly, you need to have regional and sub-regional models to be able to do that work. But when we talk about impact and we talk about investments, you, you need to be on, you need to be able to read from the same sheet of paper. Uh, I think if you look at the latest uh, Paris Climate Accord uh, activities from even four or five months ago, or even 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 sooner, uh, I think the first order coming out of those meetings was an accounting system that kept everybody honest. And I think we're we're not even close to having that now. And and I think that you know from our perspective, there's enough work that's being done, kind of. In what I would call either secondary or tertiary type of uh, marketplaces, where you know big energy companies or big technology companies that have a huge demand for energy are all pushing towards transparency in their in their power purchases, and that information is fueling kind of this growth in uh, the requirements to have uh, you know proof of greenness uh, and and locational proof of greenness and and the effectiveness. I guess in California, in some markets, they call it additionality, but the effectiveness of every dollar that's going into the system is that it's actually reducing the use of fossil fuel. I've got more, but, but I've been on a, on a little bit of a roll. All right. This seems like a perfect time to break in with our inaugural episode of Ricky's Reports from the Edge. Ricky is our friend, Ricky Butch, whom Marco and I both know from our GE days. Ricky is now also a GE veteran. And he's just recently started a company. We thought it'd be really cool to follow Ricky as he builds his company. We're going to get an inside look at the trials and tribulations of what it's like to build something really from the ground up, to kind of get into Ricky's head and to understand all of what it takes to get a new company, a new venture, uh, really off the ground. And so this is installation one we hope to do this every episode or as long as uh, ricky is willing to go along with this experiment and we understand that sometimes there might not be anything new to report and that's kind of part of the story as well we're excited for this we're pretty sure you'll enjoy it too and here we go ricky's reports from the edge ricky butch welcome to episode one of ricky's reports from the edge thank you michael it's good to be here ricky is another GE veteran. And since leaving GE relatively recently, Ricky has started up a business. He's in the early stages of an early startup and uh, we're here to hear a little bit about it. So first of all, tell us what the business is and what you're calling it and how long you've been doing it. Well, um, once again, Marco and Michael, thank you very much um, for the opportunity to, to, to share my journey as it, as it unfolds. Um, for about the past month or so, um, I have now been in the process of, of starting uh, Locktricity. And uh, Locktricity is a company um, that I believe and that I hope will, will transform the way distributed uh, renewables are uh, cited, uh, operated, and maintained. Um, and the particular focus I'm looking at is around uh, commercial and industrial segments and, and also those that uh, where, where a microgrid could be uh, uh, applicable. Yeah, Ricky, so it's great to talk to you again. Tell us, we're curious, what are, what are the first step? Uh, what have you done so far? What comes next? What stage are you at? Well, you know, Marco, I've, I've now been at this for a few weeks, and I think I, I'm really just at the, at the first step of, of consolidating my thoughts. Um, and so for the past uh, two or three weeks or so, I've really been just jotting down my ideas into, you know, a PowerPoint deck, you know, trying to weave together a story and, and really convince myself, actually, you know, why 
I think um, some of the ideas that I've, I've put, you know, down on paper have some, some merit and, and um, you know, are worth uh, funding. You know, that's sort of been the first step. And uh, then I basically just uh, have been reaching out to my LinkedIn uh, contacts and uh, just asking for about half an hour, you know, just to share my thoughts and get their feedback and, and really try and, and use that as a way to refine the proposal into something that's a little more crisp than just a laundry list of ideas. And so we know that you met with a, an investor today. What was the pitch you gave him? Yeah, it, it was really, Michael, around what I believe to be the, the, the key differentiator moving forward in, in renewable energy, which is around the digital intelligence that's required to, to operate, maintain, and integrate these systems into the larger grid. And, and as I see the core value proposition of electricity, it's really this digital platform that ties together um, various assets um, and provides a, a framework where you know, analytics and other intelligence can run to optimize how those renewables are integrated into the overall system. Besides the technology and the market and things like that, you know, the question that uh, the investor first asked me was, how do you get people interested in this? You know, how do you actually convince people that this platform is, is something that will be important? So, it, you know, beyond the value proposition, it's how do you actually go to market, which sort of got me thinking around the channel strategy. You know, it's, it's one of those things where, particularly with this nexus of, of digital and, and uh, you know, industrial assets, um, it's not just an app that you can download on your phone. There has to be some connectivity to the actual physical assets. And so getting access to those assets is very important. And so he was very keen on, on exploring that particular area. As he sort of conveyed it to me, a lot of startups often don't really consider that. And that becomes a key you know, area to get tripped up around because you know, either you have a roving sales force that does this, or um, you're kind of just shooting in the dark, trying to figure out where to go. So having a, a more strategic uh, emphasis around uh, you know, how to actually access customers and how to you know, understand their needs and, and, and cater the software solution to that was, was one that we actually drilled down quite a bit. Vicky, what's the next step? Well, you, you know, Marco, I think coming off of um, the few discussions that I've had with some of my, my contacts, um, they've, they've both been very valuable because just talking through the story allows me to identify holes and other areas. And the one thing I've noticed actually is that even just through the, the, the few conversations that I've had, a, new, a number of people have told me, show me the, the, the stepping stones. You know, how do you, you, you paint the, the vision, which I think a lot of founders probably do is here's the billion dollar idea. But before you get to the billion dollar idea, show me, you know, the $1 idea. Uh, how do you get that, that first thing done and then, you know, weave the story together around taking that one thing and expanding it out. So I, I think that, you know, my next step is really to drill down from the list of ideas that I have that I think are, are, are transformative and, and really boiling it down into this, the, the one thing I'm going to try and do in the near term and contacting, I think, the, the, the potential partners that could help me institute that one particular idea. Um, and so that's, you know, in, in parallel with refining the story and continuing to, to seek feedback on the overall narrative, I think, you know, the next step is really let me focus on getting, um, you know, one or two projects nailed down where I can really test, you know, um, a single idea that I think is, is kind of core to what the strategy will be for this company. Sounds awesome. One stepping stone at a time. And we look definitely look forward to hearing the next steps at our next update. We're really excited to, uh, to hear your updates and uh, to kind of follow you on your journey here. So thanks for agreeing to do this with us. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Ricky. And now back to our regularly scheduled programming. Back to Evan Karen of Switch. So I'll, I'll hold off for a minute and, and let Marco, let Marco <laughs> yeah. jump in. But, but I'm, I'm like champing at the bit here. <laughs> <laughs> Let me jump in while Michael cools off for a second. But staying on the topic, so even the 
to achieve what you've been mentioning just now, it seems to me three components are needed. The first component is the actual data. So secure or rather verifiable, verified data on the various forms and sources of production and consumption of energy across the world. The second component which is needed is uh, modeling. So some sort of analytical framework that models the impact of different production consumption choices in different places and therefore generates uh, the price, the carbon pricing at different points. And the third element will be the incentives that can be put in place to then generate the optimal behavior and the optimal investment. So I think you addressed uh, largely the first point, which is a switch as a platform that reaches out at the edges and uh, tries to incorporate almost every device uh, that is involved in the energy ecosystem so that the data can be verified. Can you see, can you tell me whether this is correct? So what kind of devices would be part of switch? And then maybe move on to the second element, which is the modeling. So who is it that models all this data and will transform it into a pricing that everybody accepts? Absolutely. So that's that's a great uh, great segue here. So when we originally designed or thought about this, we we really wanted to be kind of device agnostic, and and yes, that's somewhat challenging in, in many ways. But at the same time, uh, we don't want to be a hardware manufacturing company and, and building uh, our own uh, IoT technology. This the, the companies that we've been working with so far are have. Um, uh, Basically, we're integrating with um, the, the complexities of SCADA systems all the way down to what looks like a simple Raspberry Pi device. SCADA systems and Raspberry Pi device. SCADA it is an acronym. It stands for Supervisory Control and Data Acquisition, and it's used pretty widely in power systems and in telecom um, for analyzing real-time data from um, multiple sites. It's kind of a heavy-duty system, typically. Raspberry Pi, on the other hand, are small, kind of credit card-sized uh, computers. Um, they, you know, they need a monitor and keyboard, but functionally they are computers with a small amount of uh, processing power, um, and they can be used by hobbyists or by researchers uh, you know, for a variety of tasks in, you know, where the space constraints are limited or where the availability of funds are limited. Um, and they've become quite popular in the last several years for a variety of applications. And what we do is we create uh, something called a protected session where we uh, incorporate uh, SDKs directly uh, from a firmware perspective on the device. Uh, and we look at doing uh, what, what they call uh, self-sovereign identity or root identity from a device level perspective, the information from the device is then linked to um, uh, the data that's coming from that device. And so we have the opportunity to identify, uh, you know, kind of errant messages or looking at continuously pulling information from these IoT devices. And so uh, the goal is to reduce kind of man-in-the-middle attacks or any type of spoofing into the system. Basically, you take the information, you look at creating device-level reputation, uh, and then when that when that reputation or that device does things that it shouldn't be doing, then that reputation score drops, and then the, the I guess, the trust in that information can 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 drop as well. So we're doing that. And that's, that's the first, that's the first kind of order of, of, of conversation. Sending that information to models is kind of the next major 
component of the switch ecosystem. And we, we didn't set out to be the uh, climate assessment experts, right? We're, we're not building the climate assessment models there. The climate science models have been around for quite some time. And so the goal was to actually build something similar to how we, we forecast weather using like a European or American models is it's a subset of hundreds of models that create these ensemble forecasts. And so the goal is to basically build uh, a consensus approach around the information and have different methodologies for climate assessment method, you know, climate assessment models evaluate the same data, but potentially with different methodologies on how to build that. And so we're working with um, a, a group out of Harvard uh, with Ned Gully's team at MathWorks uh, to basically build what looks like a cooperative, it's, an, it's a collaboration framework that allows models to evaluate data and information and to build upon each build upon themselves to actually create a kind of a consensus outcome. And so the third one is the incentive mechanisms. The, the third one is really looking at non-price-based action uh, to, to change how uh, energy is being produced and consumed. And, and the example that I give is that uh, at 4 p.m., the carbon richness of the grid might be pretty low in certain markets that have a high penetration of, of, uh, of solar energy. So the goal would basically to send out signals to both power users uh, to potentially pre-cool their house. At the end of the day, it's looking like, what does the edge level case look like where I have a battery, a community battery, I have community solar, uh, and I'm looking at making charge, uh, basically charging decisions or pre-cooling decisions or what, what looks like uh, coordinated activities between my pool pump and my, my heat exchanger and my, you know, refrigerator, uh, compressor, uh, how do I make the most informed kind of efficient decision, not just based on LNP and LMP is locational marginal price. That's the price for electricity at a specific place on the grid at a specific time during the dispatch and what I'm paying for a retail price. So those are the three kind of major components of what we're, we're working on. And, uh, obviously they get more complex as we as we get bigger. So a lot to unpack there. One thing you said at the beginning that I just want to make sure I understand, actually, as you said, this device level recognition. So presumably that means the devices at the edge can differentiate between the electricity coming out of a, somehow, uh, the, uh, the electricity coming out of a uh, solar system versus that coming out of something else. Yeah, that's correct. And I think that, you know, we're not looking to build a permissionless ecosystem where anyone could potentially create, you know, at a device level identity, you know, there's, that's the reason why we're starting with industrial sized assets first before we get down to what looks like a, 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 you know, an unfoldable, you know, solar panel that you can put it, you can stick in your backyard. Uh, That's one of the reasons why we're working with some of the largest uh, device manufacturers for smart meters, inverter manufacturers. That's the reason why we're working with Black and Beach. We want to be able to understand the signals coming from these type of devices and create these kind of standard approaches. Uh, And this is why if you add kind of a firmware or a software development kit down to the device itself, then the signatures that are coming from the device, if you try to spoof that, you know, the device is not part of a, they call it a registry, but if you, if there's only a handful of, of inverter type types, there's only a handful of message gateways that you can send information through. And so from that perspective, that's kind of how we're, we're approaching it. You know, our goal is to, you know, if someone has a DIY kit that they put up their own, they went to Home Depot and bought a solar panel and went to, you know, the inverter warehouse and bought an inverter. And, uh, you know, our goal is if they've got a Raspberry Pi device that they go online, they download our 
SDK. Software development kit. Basically, they register the device itself to a identity on the public blockchain. They register themselves to that device. And so we pretty much have a pretty good idea of what that device is, what the device technology type is. And the goal for the computation is there's a validation computation as well. So if there's no trusted party that is working on on verifying that what that actually what that information actually is, is that we can use these computational approaches to say, well, if you've registered a solar farm that is one kilowatt and it's producing in this specific location, this specific geolocation, uh, and it's producing energy or producing signals at at nine PM when it's pitch blackout, that's probably not a real asset. So we're gonna we're doing a lot of work with 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 doing like what looks like algorithmic validation uh, for specific device types. Got it. So no no need for human inspectors to be in the field to say, yeah, this is a solar field, a solar farm check or whatever. Yeah, that's that's the goal. That's the goal, and I think what we're we're also looking towards is looking at they call it kind of trusted validators or trusted inter- the whole the whole kind of blockchain and and full fully not trusting anybody is kind of it's not lost on every it's not lost on me. But in some ways, someone's got to install that solar device. That someone's got to install those panels. There's a there's a roofer. There's an electrician. There's a master electrician. There's a certified electrician. There's the utility. Somebody is seeing that, and so. From my perspective, we can use math to do it, or we can use these trusted validators. If Solar City or Tesla or 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 First Solar is installing a panel, it, it'd be great for them to do the registration, right? That's that makes it very easy for us. But that works in markets like the U.S., but that doesn't necessarily work for um, a solar developer in the global South or in the you know in areas that that don't have that type of institutional trust and reputation that's that's needed to be able to validate these assets. Many, many years ago, I'm dating myself now, but in the run-up to the Kyoto Protocol, I worked on some of the monitoring and verification uh, standardization work for things like the clean development mechanism and joint implementation. And really then the issue was that the worry about fraudulent projects had mostly to do with afforestation or reforestation um, yeah. with the idea being that anything on a grid would be relatively straightforward to, to track. And so this is, you know, there wasn't the supposition that there would be sort of fake projects out on the grid. And actually, I'm, tell us about that. I mean, are there, I know that there were fake certificates traded in the EU emissions trading system several years ago. I don't know that uh, maybe I'm not aware of it, or maybe they're hidden, but I don't know that fraud is a big problem in this industry. It's not for the compliant recs or the compliant credits, but there is a whole subsection of non-compliant credits, these voluntary credits that are uh, done through self-attestations. So if you look at what happened in Utah uh, about a year ago, uh, it was there was about $15 million of over-counted, uh, double-counted credits that were both counted at the federal level, the state level, the city level, and the local level. Uh, and so the goal is to basically provide one record that can only be marketed once it can only be used once and once it's been claimed or sold or or used as part of the um, an, an emissions reduction program that it can't be double or triple or quadruple counted and so i think that's the major risk of fraud i think in other emissions markets there was a, a significant amount of fraud with accounting for rin credits uh for biodiesel fuels uh there's a there the electricity market has a little bit less but there, there definitely um, exists significant 
uh, abilities to double counter or try to um, try to double market it. I think that's one of the major problems is double marketing, maybe then pure fraud. Uh, if you look at double marketing and say it's claiming it's both parties, both the buyer and the seller of the renewable energy claiming that they created renewable energy. It's, it's only the, the, the ultimate owner of those credits are the ones who um, uh, the financial interest is, should be credited to them, not necessarily everybody down the chain. I think that's the important, the important piece is what's in your inventory rather than basically saying, well, both of us were involved, so we both get credit for it. That's kind of the major, major concern. So let me see if I got this right. The reason to use blockchain, there's some fraud now, although it's not prevalent, I, I, I gather. Yeah. yeah. But you're expecting that the greater the scope of renewable and carbon markets generally, the greater the appetite and incentive for fraud. And so here's a, here's a way to sort of guard against that. But but it seems like actually, basically, you're you're looking to collect data and blockchain is sort of a useful way to collect data in an open source fashion. It's a, the fraud prevention isn't the key for you. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, it's just a benefit of blockchain in general, right? It's not, we're really not selling ourselves as a fraud prevention tool. I think one of the interesting things about the putting the the data in a blockchain environment is that um, you're able to share that information across multiple stakeholders without necessarily uh, giving up all the, what they call the digital gold now or digital oil, which is like data. Uh, and so we're, we're not trying to take away people's advantages of owning their own information or owning data because they're paying for it. But we, what we want to do is we want to be able to bring that data into a commons framework that allows models to compute and, and do the analytics without potentially giving up all of the proprietary value of that information. I think one of the things that we didn't speak about is that once you're able to put data into a data commons, you can actually uh, evaluate valuable data sets versus invaluable you know, data sets that have very little value. Uh, so what we talk about is building um, high resolution models that have um, robust data sets, but the incremental dollar amount for new data to improve the model is not worth very much. But if we look at low resolution data sets or data that is, that's fairly poor, the, uh, the models have to make a lot of assumptions for that information uh, to be accurate. Uh, so the incremental um, data that, that flows into those models are going to be worth a lot more. And so really there is a, there's a, there's an effort to create this kind of dynamic adaptive control. Really, we're, we're looking at dynamic pricing for data to evaluate, um, uh, to inform models, to make better decisions. That is something that I'm very excited about. I think we're working on that right now in Puerto Rico and some of the other pilots that we have, uh, is looking at, um, is creating dynamic pricing for data and having the models basically say, I lean very heavily on this data set, which was uh, a data set of aggregated battery uh, storage, you know, again, I'm making this up, but aggregated battery storage states in, you know, North Carolina. And, you know, just so happens that that data was, 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 we lean very heavily on that information to make an economic decision or have the model output is the, you know, the weighting of that information was very high for that specific action. We're going to value that information more than, you know, maybe just the a standard data set that, that really doesn't provide any, any real incremental value. So you're trying to incentivize additional renewables or, or clean energy. At what point or at what stage in the various chain of actions does the renewable producer or developer, whoever it is, actually receive additional income? Is, it, is the expectation that it's somehow in the financing of the projects is the expectation that it's only once the projects are up and running and you know the the coins flow to that owner 
with each kilowatt hour produced, how do they make money? How do they make money? So, so I mean, I think if you look at some of the, you know, again, I, I hate to say process automation is the way that you can you can save or and or generate additional uh, cost savings, but if you look at the uh, the benefits of using a, a digital asset or basically bringing bringing the data into a blockchain environment is you're reducing the costs associated with settlements and reducing the costs associated with uh, an energy or asset manager, and it's not huge, but you know, per asset it might be. You know, sixty to one hundred thousand dollars a year of costs associated with kind of de minimis, you know, back of house, you know, settlement processing, which is not super exciting to a lot of people, but it's definitely uh, it's low hanging fruit. It's money there. I think as as we look at at growing the ecosystem, uh, if you look at the carbon marketplaces, if you look at um, uh, you know what that data could be worth, that's where things get more exciting. Uh, so from a renewable energy generation perspective, we've been working with producers that want to have a more enhanced accounting uh, system, more trust and ver- uh, verification in their data, uh, and basically access to that raw information without having to pay uh, basically a data service provider to aggregate that information, analyze that information, do visualizations. Um, there's no need for Tableau to look at, you know, no, no diss to Tableau, but there's no reason for Tableau to be to be part of that conversation. And so, uh, maybe Morningstar won't like the fact that we can pull information directly from the data source and report that for what looks like fractions of a penny. So, I would say that there's a disruption in in, in that component. But you know, from a from a token perspective. You know, it's really going to be depending on how active that information is being utilized. If the information is just really for uh, information purposes only, and it doesn't really leave the ecosystem or doesn't leave the organization, it's not worth very much to them. Um, other than the fact that they've got a basically a trusted data source that they can rely on, and they can the CFO could put a stamp on without having to worry about whether or not um, that information's been manipulated or not. So that definitely has some value. Uh, when it's talking about the you know the level of greenness or the level of renewable energy that's been purchased and or generated by a specific organization, as it grow as the network grows, I think that the values to cities, the values to uh, additional organizations that are looking to source power from regional grids rather than buying offsets to in Texas to offset their usage in Singapore, uh, I think that's when things get much more interesting and 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 much more exciting. So I thought I understood something, and now I'm not sure I understand something. Okay. From the white paper on the website, tokens are created as energy is as clean energy is produced. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So I didn't mention this before. Is that the to- the tokens themselves, and and this is kind of a I wouldn't say it's a pivot from a blockchain model. Is that you know about 18 months ago, blockchain blockchain companies that were focused on building a cooperative currency, uh, building a new, a new platform. They wanted to be everything to everybody. They wanted to be a currency. They wanted to be a technology. They wanted to be a platform. They wanted to be an ecosystem, a marketplace, et cetera, et cetera. So what we've actually done here is actually bifurcated the process into two tokens. The first token is an energy data token, a metadata token that can be transferred between one organization and another, or one stakeholder or another that basically records all the information from the device records the geolocation, the amount of energy that's being produced, sends that information to an oracle, which is these clusters of, of, of analytics to basically assign a carbon value to that information and putting all that data and information into a what they call an NFT, which is like this non-fungible token. That token can then be transferred and traded either in a peer-to-peer marketplace uh, directly between one, one stakeholder and another. And the second token, which is the switch token, which exists now, is really kind of the access entry key, the utility 
currency that that is being rewarded for participation in the network. It really is a a network incentive for uh, providing data to the data commons uh, for participating in the either model cooperation or participation. And so it's really kind of this reward this reward piece for participation in the network, but it's based off of the, instead of being based off the number of megawatts you generate, it's really based on the carbon that you've offset. And so it's linked to a carbon calculation, but it really is used as an in-platform incentive. It's not, it's not to be uh, used to replace a carbon credit. The NFTs are really the, the certification qualification of what a carbon credit would, would be based off of. The monetary value in, dollar terms or euro terms or whatever the equivalent of in those um, switch tokens are funded how so you have a, a customer switch has a customer that's whatever i think you i think you mentioned companies with large server farms so they buy a certain number of tokens or they buy the electricity coming out of or not the electricity coming out of a producer but in exchange for this producer offsetting ghgs they will send him a certain number of these switch tokens yeah uh, so so the 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 approach is that the switch tokens is used as an in-platform incentive and and the requirements to participate in the network and so if you want to um if you want to participate in the data commons you want to register your asset you want to use the computational uh engines uh that are participating in the switch ecosystem you want to send your data to mit to analyze your uh, level of greenness, your level of efficiency, your level, your requirements that you need to purchase uh, XYZ number of kilowatts of energy in certain regions, then you have to use the switch token. And, and, and that's the, the goal is to, is to require um, participants in the network. If they want to utilize network services, then they have to use the switch token. And, and the people who are rewarded in switch token are people who are providing uh, valuable services to the network and valuable services to the network are running nodes are running uh, oracles are um, uh, helping with uh, with additional development but really the major component of switch awards are registered assets that are making a positive impact from a climate perspective and so you don't need to buy switch token in order to uh, participate in the greenhouse gas you know, programs, what you need to do is you need to register your asset. And by registering your asset, you are then uh, part of that network. And that's kind of, that's kind of how the token model is, 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 has been set up. Probably the white paper is a bit aged and, and dated and kind of using uh, some of the, the, the prevailing ideas of, of the crypto markets 18 months ago, but it's much more practical to say, is utility ABC going to go buy buy a bunch of switch token to to go and and build information to a network probably not but let's let them register their assets let's let them inform information and if they use the network services like the computational engines the oracle approaches then they have to you know then the switch token is going to be something that's going to be required to keep the network you know going it's going to be the currency in the platform if that makes sense I, I think so. I, I'm going to ask one more blockchain question. Sorry, sorry, Marco. One one thing in the in the white paper which I thought was super interesting, and maybe maybe this is dated proof of production as opposed to proof of work or proof of stake. So I, I gather one of the things that motivated you to begin with was the ridiculous amounts of energy used or electricity used in traditional blockchain mining, yep. and yep. you've come up with a way to do it in a less energy intensive. Fashion. So what, what's going on there? 
Yeah. So when you look at consensus approaches that use proof of work uh, or um, you know high computational costs, it's a zero sum game, right? It's it's you have you know millions of uh, machines looking at solving a, a, a cryptographic hash problem uh, to secure the network. And, and that's, that's a purely permissionless environment. And I think if you look at the energy markets, you're looking at critical human infrastructure, you're looking at a bit of a different marketplace in general, it's just fundamentally different than managing math in a distributed network. It's really about trust in information and trust in data. And so when we talk about proof of production is it's a computationally light approach because it doesn't just, it's not focused on permissionless access. It's focused on, on registration, device level identity. You know, John Clippinger, our co-founder calls it like a proof of standing consensus is really focused on linking a root identity to a device, linking that device to a reputation, that reputation, that device has a reputation in the network. And when you're looking at creating consensus around information, the computational approaches are close to, you know, the costs are close to zero. Um, But where you lose in fully decentralized permissionless environments is it's, you, you can't have it both ways. And so the Bitcoin network requires no, intermediary, right? It, it's, a, it's about dropping in a, a ASIC, running an algorithm and participating in the security and trust of a, of, a, of a public ledger. The switch system is focused on registration and reputation. And that's where you're not, you're not having to run the same level of computation uh, in order to uh, secure the information in the network. One quick follow-up. I hope it's a quick follow-up on the models. What's the time resolution you're expecting them to forecast? Because you said at one point something about locational marginal prices, which is you know very very granular. Um, a lot of these models obviously go out you know years and years and years. So what what's the forecast time horizon for these? For these models? So so what we're trying to do is we're trying to predict the real time marginal impact of carbon. And so like the longer term models are going to be based on econometric uh, supply demand, what what assets are being retired, what what energy uh, you know uh, assumptions are being made on on new on new build, etc. Those are fairly. Uh, slow, kind of more static models and information can be kind of, I wouldn't say change, but I'd say information in those type of models are a bit slower moving. Right now, we're pulling information from some of the devices every four seconds. Currently, we're using a 24-hour snapshot uh, to be able to to go through the entire day and look at the carbon richness of the grid per hour. Uh, our goal is to move down to the settlement price point, which is every five minutes in most deregulated energy markets. Our target is to actually get down to the five-minute interval level. I don't think we're, we're going to be in a in a frequency type of situation where it's every second or every sub-second. Uh, that's just, you know, from a computational standpoint, it's a kind of a bit overkill because energy grids usually dispatch based on a, a, a five minute um, uh, dispatch cycle. So that's kind of as granular as we're probably going to get is the five minute level. That's, that's awfully granular. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think if you look at if you look at the edge level case, which is basically kind of a fully informed edge grid where my home talks to your home, your home talks to the school across the street, the school across the street talks to the neighborhood grocery store, we're going to need to get even even more granular. But I think for, for, for all intents and purposes here, uh, a five-minute computation can be done with the current information that we have today in most markets. We're not trying to overload the, the way that the methodologies are being calculated, but um, our goal in the future is to have uh, what they call kind of these agency clusters that are very good at specific tasks, uh, specific tasks being that if, if I have a, uh, a robust um, global model for carbon, I'm going to want to have a robust regional and sub-regional model for carbon that can speak to the global model when needed uh, and not necessarily have to run 
the computation for every asset in real time. If, if, you know, so basically looking to create more of a fractal system uh, that could basically run you know, very hyper-locally if needed. Yeah, so so really, just kind of a, to summarize, like the foundation and the switch system is not really going to be the ones designing the models, the 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 actual climate assessment methodologies. We're designing the infrastructure to share and record share data and record the outputs of that of that model competition or those that model collaboration. And so, what's cool about that is that we're you know we can enable. You know, academic institutions, for-profit enterprises, uh, all different people who are involved in the energy ecosystem around energy efficiency, energy technology, and energy data to collaborate and participate there. So we're really just, we're kind of the architects around the building design. We're not actually doing the, you know, we're not actually doing the computation itself. And what I like about this is that uh, in an environment today where it seems to be particularly difficult to generate cooperation at the government level, here we're talking about a platform that would hopefully foster cooperation at the private sector, private actor level. Yeah, this was fantastic. It was very, very clear. I know Michael usually likes to end our conversations by asking for your view of the future 20 years ahead. It seems to me we've uh, pretty much covered that. You've already given us a sense of what the future of energy switch enabled will look like. But is there anything else you would like to Make sure our listeners don't miss anything else you would like to say before we end our podcast. Yeah, I think that you know what I'd like to say is that the you know a lot of people focus on the climate problem and say it's too big to solve. And I think that you know what what I've noticed over the last couple of years is that I, I believe that the technology that we have today can actually enable a clean, carbon-free future. Uh, I think that your listeners and and the world can get there uh, and and get there and without having to give up. A lot, uh, or without having to cost a lot, and and right now, if you look at the cost of, of clean energy, solar, etc., the price has has dropped so much that in in over a hundred markets around the world, it's cheaper to generate solar energy than any other form of energy without subsidies, uh, and it's only getting cheaper. And I think that if you look at what the world looks like, and I know I mentioned it before, where you have a fully edge level optimized case where every home is is has awareness of what the other homes are doing and the state of the energy market. Um, I think that we're going to get into a situation where we have a reduced amount of energy consumed per person, despite a fully digitized world, right? I think, you know, we're not going anywhere from data. Data is only becoming more uh, and more um, part of everyday everyone's life. And, and, you know, we've got gadgets and we've got, you know, all types of electronically controlled systems. But I, I do believe that we have a real opportunity to reduce the energy consumed per cap per person, uh, increase the efficiency of that and increase the awareness of the of, of the grid. You know, it's going to require a combined effort, but it, it's not insurmountable. Great final quote. Thank you, Evan. Much appreciated. Thank you. I really appreciate your guys' time and, and love to be kind of involved in the show in the future. And, and as Switch progresses, I'd love to kind of give you guys updates and and uh, and uh, take it from there. Wonderful. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, but thanks, thanks a lot and hope to see you in person sometime soon. Yes, absolutely. Great talking to you guys today. Thanks again. Curious enough to know what Marco and I think of Switch? Stick around for our post-game discussion coming right up. Well... Uh, as you know, um, I went into the interview with Evan a little bit skeptical about uh, the business model, um, and I came out with a slightly better appreciation for what he's trying to do, but still with uh, with some skepticisms. And um, before I before I 
I start, um, I'll say that I think in general, I love the idea of trying to incentivize more renewable energy. Um, and I, I like the idea of using data to do it. I think there's, you know, he's on to something there. Um, and I, you know, I don't hate um, his implementation of blockchain. <laughs> um, but I, but I think there are a bunch of things in the, in the framing of it and in the, in the business model generally that I'm, I have my reservations about. So um, I, I why, don't, why, don't you, why don't you go now before I, before I go to you? <laughs> I didn't think that you were uh, not as hard as I feared or expected you would go on. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'll tell you what my impressions are. Of course, I've been thinking about these issues for longer. I've had more discussions with them. But uh, the one thing that I really like about what they're doing is the concept of focusing on collecting better and more reliable data on what is happening on energy production, energy consumption, and uh, the carbon footprint that these activities have. Making the data more secure, so less easy to be tampered with, which is where the blockchain comes in, and fostering an effort for a better analysis of the environmental impact and therefore the sustainability of these effects, which was where the ecosystem of models and researchers comes in. So the idea that you will have different institutions, some academic, some not, having access to the data, bringing in their models and showing what our models forecast and how our models assess the impact of different measures. So that part I like a lot. The one twist to this is the possibility of having the measures of value in real time. And we can debate how how much that matters. But to me, the granularity of being able to assess the impact of one extra solar generation plant in one specific area of the world at one specific point in time is relevant. Where I think the more work still needs to be done is how you link this to generation of economic value. So where does what, especially when you think of the idea of the tokens, the idea of the various ways where you can endow these tokens with economic value, I think is the area where a lot of work still needs to happen. Yeah. At one point he said they've split it into two tokens. Um, one sort of the metadata token um, about, you know, with data about the generation itself. Um, and then one was the, was, I think he referred to it as the switch token. <laughs> which I gather has some additional monetary value attached to it, though, honestly, it wasn't, it wasn't fully clear to me um, how that, how those switch tokens derive their value. At first I thought it was from the 
generation itself. It wasn't. Then I thought it's from the models doing the analysis on the generation. It's not clear to me who, who pays for that, you know, who, why, why there's enough demand that for those services to get that much better and compete with each other um, that, that people would pay for that, to be honest. I mean, the way the, the way his aim is expressed, and I think the way that the business is framed is to incentivize more renewable energy. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, um, the, de- the developers of projects need to have a reason to build renewable energy to start with. So the funds somehow need to flow to them early on, or there needs to be some promise of funding early on, like with the U.S. production tax credit, where even though the credits don't accrue until the kilowatt hours are generated, deals are deals are, are built on the with the promise of those renewable based kilowatt hours being generated. It, the link between a switch token and a renewable deal wasn't made clear to me. Maybe, maybe I missed something in his description or maybe um, they haven't yet sort of thought through how money ultimately flows from some entity somewhere to a renewable producer somewhere else. Um, but there wasn't, there's, there's some, there's some logic chain, I think that is not well spelled out, but there's also the, the notion that it's a marginal improvement that they're seeking. It's that they're looking for the best renewable project, not just any renewable project. So by doing that, I think they've actually, even though it's admirable, right? You want the one that you want to give preference to the one that has the most beneficial GHG reduction impact. That's great. But that also means that the market that they're serving is even smaller, right? It's not that it's not a token for all generation. It's a token for renewable generation, not even just clean generation. I gather it's like nuclear wouldn't count or carbon capture wouldn't count. It's, it's renewable generation. So it's a slice of the pie. And from that slice, it's just sort of skimming the icing off. It's just the, um, the most green of the renewable generation. So they're targeting, I think, a very small segment. And obviously, you know, the point is, yeah, we want more and more people to be interested in that, in that cream of the pie. But um, uh, no, it's, so, it's a tough putt to begin with. So my understanding of, of the last point, so the idea of uh, targeting uh, just the top of uh, the pot is different from yours, but it, but it also connects to the deeper, more fundamental question, which is what gives value to the switch tokens, right? Because uh, the way I understand it at this stage is the following. The division between uh, two tokens, uh, you can think about it almost as an internal currency and an external currency. And the internal currency is kind of uh, easy to understand uh, of along the lines of monopoly money, that uh, it's, uh, you, you earn it uh, based on activities that you perform within the ecosystem, and you can spend it uh, on activities and services within the ecosystem. 
and there you can define the rules of the game whichever way you want. But the value is implicit to what happens within the ecosystem where people produce power, they create data, you can get access to the data, you can model the data. The external side, the switch tokens, is more interesting in the sense that uh, you want to know can you convert that token into dollars and uh, how and at what price. And that's where my bias as an economist is always that uh, there has to be something that uh, endows the token with value from the outside. That is, unless you tell me that uh, the token actually corresponds to a certain amount of electricity supply that you now own, okay, then you can sell that on the market. You've now transformed the token into an actual good that you can sell. Or you say that it actually becomes a basis, a currency, which will be given value by an external actor. So the simplest scenario to imagine is one where a government nationwide or local that wants to incentivize the production of green energy says, okay, I will give this much of a subsidy per kilowatt to anybody who produces green energy. How much you produce is measured by the switch platform and converted into a token value. And then the token value gets translated into the amount of monetary subsidy that the government gives you. That, to me, is the easiest way of uh, solving the question of what gives uh, the tokens value. But, of course, this is outside of uh, the switch proposition now, because switch cannot uh, determine what the government authorities will want to do. It does, however, link to the second point you had made, which is whether they're targeting only the marginally best uh, Incentive, and I think that the answer is not. The answer is if you have a system that allows you to say that uh, a, uh, the production or say setting up uh, a uh, solar facility on the outskirts of New Delhi now has a lot more value than putting up a similar solar facility in downtown Los Angeles 10 years from now, that is simply reflected in the subsidies that the government would allocate. The government would say, well, yes, if you do something like this, uh, it has a greater impact on carbon reduction, so I will reward it more. And then you can translate it immediately into not just... uh, At that point, you're not just targeting the marginally best initiative, you're creating price discrimination. Then people can decide and say, yes, I would love to set up a new plant on the outskirts of Delhi, but I can't. I am an operator here in California. I will do this instead, even though I know it has a lower value in terms of tokens and monetary rewards. Um, I guess, I mean, I think it, it, it depends on where in the decision chain the, the tokens flow, right? If it's If they flow to the developer of the project, if in the, in the case you're saying they flow to the developer of the project, um, either for 
the Delhi case or the LA case, um, then, and it's, and they're two separate developers, then yes, each one would get it, but the one in Delhi would get a little bit more. But if it's, there's a fixed amount of, of switch tokens on the market and which there are, by the way, at least according to the white paper that we said, the white paper might be a little bit out of date. There is a fixed total of tokens by I think 2042. And it has something, I forget exactly how to calculate it, but it's a set quantity. Um, and so if there's a set amount out there, my, I thought that what he's saying was that it goes to, if, you know, again, whichever are the, the, most consequential or the most beneficial reductions. Um, again, I don't, it's not totally clear to me how the system is set up for, for it to work. I think the way he wants it in an idealized system, it's a global market for these, right? That's the point. It's a yes, global yeah. commodity. It's a global problem. So it's a global commodity. Um, but again, for that, for that to work just from a, pure governmental implementation and logistics function, the governments of whatever funding authority it is, whether it's the state of California or the, the state of Delhi or, you know, some third state um, or government elsewhere would have to agree that the accounting, first of all, that the accounting from switch is valid for them and they accept it, but also that projects produced elsewhere, um, are of value to their taxpayers, right? And for that, you need some other kind of global agreement, I think. I mean, you could, I guess, envision a case where the government of California says, um, because greenhouse gases are globally distributed and then this, and the, you know, the place where they are emitted or where they are avoided doesn't matter, we're gonna pay for them anywhere. Um, but, you know, most governments, even if they understand that science are more parochial than that and want their, their tax dollars spent locally. Um, so I, I don't know. I think that's another wrinkle that, you know, it's like they need another layer of marketplace somewhere in order to make their, their tokens valuable and, and fungible in some sense. Yeah, that, that is a very fair point. And it's, uh... It's like an, another layer of uh, geopolitical complication in the sense that uh, it goes back to the more fundamental discussion we've already had for a number of years where, uh, say, the government of India will say on the global stage, okay, you guys in the US and Europe, you complain that India and China create a lot of pollution and they increase the carbon footprint enormously. You want us to work hard to reduce it. Uh, however, it's very costly for us to reduce it in terms of opportunity cost, what we give up in economic development. And secondly, the reason why this is a problem today is that you guys in Europe and the US have been polluting and damaging the environment for the last hundred years. Who, so me? You can't now expect us to solve the problem. So from that perspective, as, as you're pointing out, I would also fully expect that whoever is in power in India would say, no, no, hold on a second. I, I, I'm not convinced that I should be the only one to pay for renewable energy in my country, given that it's a global problem, let alone me paying for renewable energy in Los Angeles. 
it's a non-starter. But uh, so that is, that is something that will be a very difficult discussion at some point. But again, I think the, the contribution that Switch is attempting to make, uh, first of all, is uh, to create an agreed assessment of what the problem is. So ideally lead us to a situation where we all agree of which actions in which countries would be most valuable in terms of reducing the carbon footprint. And then once you have that, and that is broadly agreed, then you might have different situations. You might have a situation where each individual government says, you know, we don't care, we're only funding whatever is done within our borders. But yes, we will pick the most impactful projects within our borders. Or you might have an effort to create some sort of supranational authority along the lines of the World Bank and the IMF, founded by member governments, with a common pool of money which is then invested globally based on the different priorities which seems like a very far-fetched scenario, but in any case, uh, having a, a common and agreed assessment of what the, the best and the most impactful actions for the environment would be, I think would already be a significant step forward, calibrating the strategy. In, in some, though, it seems, you know, going back to the earlier discussion, it seems like they need a, a more concrete link between incentive and action between the tokens and between the actions they're trying to incentivize there. There needs to be a different market structure or a more formal market structure that adds, that creates value that is imbued somehow in the token. Um, And then a link from that to actual, you know, decision-making behavior. I agree. Uh, I don't know. Anything else about, uh, about switch that we, we missed or we haven't covered yet. No, I think we have identified the, what we are the most important thing, which is one, the potential value, which again to me is getting better data and a platform that allows to eventually reach a better and common understanding of what has the most impact as we try to create a more sustainable energy system. And secondly, though, the biggest question mark, which is, how do you imbue the system with value so as to incentivize the optimal behavior? So we call it a call it a day. We could. <laughs> it's fantastic. And I'll just add one more plug again, or plea rather, for uh, listeners to give us some reviews, give us some stars, let us know how we're doing, and uh, tell tell the world about us. That's it for now. Thanks for being curious, and thanks for listening to Macro Micro. Michael Marco and Startups at the Edge.